0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 435 to 41. The word of God speaks to us. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion.
1: Thank you, Molly. It's good to be with you all tonight. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ, one of the pastors here at Frontline. It's a joy to serve you and to get to open God's Word with you this evening. It's good to see you too. (laughs) Pray, Pray with me over this text. Lord, what an astonishing story! Help us. Father, would you send your spirit to open our eyes to see wonderful things about Jesus? Lord, we say with the desperate and hungry man in the Gospels, we would see Jesus. Open our ears, Jesus, to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. We're a hungry people. We need fresh hope. We need fresh faith, Lord, for all the dry places in us, all the cynical, hopeless places in us. Speak to those places tonight, we pray, for your sake. Amen. Almost a decade ago, I sailed into a storm that I never saw coming. My wife, Kristen, was Pregnant with our twin boys, Ryle and Schaefer, when we moved into 804 Northwest 19th Street, a historic Mesta Park neighborhood downtown. We've been saving up for years in order to make this move. And within a week of moving in, the storm hit. Our sewer line completely collapsed. We had to move out, move our family in with friends. While we wondered how to come up with the $7,000 it would take to repair it. And the plumbers made it clear that there were no payment plans. I felt like I was drowning in that moment. Somebody who got his first paying job at age 14. I'd never had credit card debt. I'd paid cash for every car I'd ever owned. I'd avoided student loans. My mother raised me with a holy terror of debt, but this time was different. For the first time in my life, I was completely out of financial options. I felt incompetent and ashamed. When this storm hit, it tempted me to believe the lie that I needed to brace myself for whatever consequences were going to come after it that I so clearly deserved. When the storm hit, it tempted me to believe the lie that God was probably indifferent since I'd apparently let my desire for this house cloud my better judgment. And the irony in all that is that we had just seen God powerfully intervene on our behalf when a family member stole my identity, destroyed my credit, and left us trapped between the house we just sold and the house that no bank in the country would loan us money for, based on how this family member had run up bills under my name and my social security number. We were able to finally pay a company to repair our credit after all three credit bureaus ignored us, just in time to buy this home. A miracle, the kindness of God. But this time was different. I definitely didn't have $7,000. And then, without telling us, our pastor graciously and quietly reached out to people in our church with financial means And these folks were not indifferent. Immediately, 18 families gave us the entire $7,000 we needed to pay for the repairs, and we were able to move back into the house. 18 thank you letters later, I noticed that I still felt unsettled. I would forever be in these people's debt, and that was a problem for me. I'd grown up watching people in my family fail so spectacularly and so responsibility and self-reliance, without me even realizing it, had almost become obsessions for me. My goal increasingly became to not fail at everything more than to succeed at anything. In later years, when we were graced to finally rebuild our savings, I would catch myself fantasizing about paying all these people back so I could reset the ledger and restore my illusion of self-reliance. I never really knew just how proud and self-reliant I was until that storm hit. When my sewer broke, God graciously led me to receive gifts that were freely given that I didn't deserve and I couldn't repay. So I want you to see here in our text, Mark 4, verses 35 through 41, Jesus' disciples are going to sail into a storm of their own that they never saw coming either. That's going to threaten to destroy them. And just like all of us here, even though they've gotten a front row seat to miraculous scenes of God's provision over and over and over again, this storm is still going to tempt them to believe a whole host of lies about God's goodness. Notice how Mark sets the scene for us. Verse 36 says, They took him with them in the boat just as he was. In other words, as another translation renders it, they took him along since he was already in the boat. (laughs) He, he was already in the boat because back in chapter 4, verse 1, we read again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Why does Jesus ask them to leave the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and head to the eastern shore? This wasn't a small pond, the Sea of Galilee was over 30 miles long. And 12 miles wide it would be the equivalent of trying to sail from Edmund all the way down to Norman. This was a large body of water that was subject to frequent and sudden storms. Why would Jesus ask them to take this trip? Well, we notice again in verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. They're probably, at least in part, just trying to catch their breath, to catch a break, to leave this crowd that Mark 3.20 tells us was pressing around so hard they couldn't even eat. And they didn't know it yet, but while they're sailing away from the chaos of the crowd, they're actually just sailing straight into the chaos of the storm. And isn't that true for all of us? Suffering rarely gives any of us advance warning. Verse 37, the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Of Jesus' 12 disciples with him, we know at least four of them, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, were watermen. Their livelihood, their vocations, their entire lives were in and around this body of water. In Mark 1, we saw Jesus literally calling them away from their fishing nets. Several other translations render it something like, so the boat was nearly swamped. And we ha- I think we have a picture of it. Astoundingly, a first century Galilean fishing boat from the Sea of Galilee, from the time of Jesus, was preserved in mud for 2,000 years, found and excavated in the mid-'80s when the water level had receded so dramatically in the Sea of Galilee. And you'll notice that it could comfortably fit Jesus and his 12 disciples, but also the sides of this boat were pretty low in the way they were constructed. And so they weren't much defense against large storm waves. In Luke's account, in Luke 8, we read... As they sailed, Jesus fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. This is a real, life-threatening situation. How often in our lives does the circumstance shift suddenly and just enough to make God's track record all of a sudden seem irrelevant? How often does the current crisis push our panic button just in the right way so that we're convinced that we're on our own all over again? These are men who've seen Jesus' power over and over again, but this time's different because the boat is sinking. I mean, Jesus may do blindness, but these men are responsible to handle storms on a lake they've been sailing on their whole lives. This is what they do. If they can't handle this, what good are they? They spent years building up the skill to ride out the storms this lake brings, but it's clear suddenly their expertise isn't enough. They're drowning anyway. So here in this passage, I want you to see that when storms hit, they tempt us all to believe at least three lies about God. One, that God's indifferent. Two, the prayer won't make a difference. And three, that no matter how many times God may have put his glory on display and rescued us in the past, this time is different. Consider first the lie of God's indifference. Look at verse 38. We see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. Mark says, the stern on the cushion. Probably similar to how we might say, put the groceries in the trunk. Saying Jesus was asleep on the cushion or the sailor's seat would have provided a location that readers of Mark's gospel, familiar with these kind of boats, could have pictured in their minds as they read. Here's Jesus asleep in the stern on the cushion. And In reading verse 38, we need to guard against seeing something mystical in every single thing Jesus does. Here's a guy who's been teaching all day without a microphone from a boat so the crowd doesn't trample him. He's been touching and healing untold numbers of the sick and the demonized. He's fully God. He's also fully man, and now he's fully exhausted. He's probably sleeping through the storm after a really long day. And the disciples say, verse 38, we are perishing We're going to die. More literally, we're going to be destroyed. Notice there, in verse 38, they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This particular kind of rhetorical question in the original language of Mark's gospel always implies that for the one asking the question, yes is the only right answer. Hey, Jesus, you care, don't you? We hear an echo of this when Martha approaches Jesus with her own frustration in the middle of her own storm in Luke 10. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. This is what suffering does to us. It never leaves us in neutral. Suffering is always an opportunity to either confirm your suspicion about God's indifference or to experience the safety of his presence. Jesus, do you not care? But the good news is that even the questions that we ask badly, God always answers graciously. Because he understands that there's often this slippery illogic that starts to play in our minds when suffering hits, and it goes something like this. This is painful, But God didn't stop it from happening, so therefore God must not care. Said another way, we believe the lie that deep suffering equals divine indifference. God must not care. Otherwise, why would he be allowing this to happen to me? Doesn't he know how painful this is for me? Doesn't he understand that I've always dreaded something like this happening? Surely he knows how hard I've worked for years to prevent this exact scenario, and yet here I am anyway. How cruel of him. Jesus, don't you care? This is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 10 in the midst of suffering, why, oh Lord, does it seem like you're standing so far away? Why does it feel like you hide yourself in times of trouble? Some of you know the story of C.S. Lewis who tragically lost his wife, Joy, to cancer. And at that time, he was perhaps the most famous Christian apologist in the West, previously converted as an atheist professor, a top scholar in his field. And when Joy died, Lewis poured out his agony in his private journal, never intended to be published, but later published as A Grief Observed. And Lewis wrote this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights on in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity? and so very absent a help in time of trouble. Lewis reflects, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Lewis Understood, the storm of deep suffering always tempts us to believe the lie of divine indifference. Now at this point in the narrative, any good Jew would be smiling while reading Mark's account because they couldn't miss all the obvious parallels to a story that they'd all memorized since they were a child. Jonah chapter 1 reads, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And just to make absolutely certain that we don't miss the connections, Jesus himself in Matthew 12 says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Not great preaching, by the way. And behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. A great windstorm, terrified sailors, a sleeping prophet of God awakened by sailors, astonished that he could sleep through a storm that was threatening to destroy them all. Men who fear God greatly when the storm suddenly ceases. A prophet thrown into the mouth of the storm to satisfy its wrath, who spends three days and three nights in darkness before emerging with a message of good news For people facing divine judgment. Something greater than Jonah is here. Whenever the storm tempts us to believe the lie of God's indifference, we need to remind ourselves that unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't run from God's call to rescue us from the storm of his just wrath, but he faithfully obeyed his father to the bitter end. Unlike Jonah, Jesus would willingly throw himself overboard Into the very eye of the storm, not as a guilty man saving the innocent from something they didn't deserve, but as the only innocent man who ever lived saving the guilty from what they most definitely deserved. When storms hit, they tempt us to believe the lie that God's indifferent. They also tempt us to believe the lie that prayer won't make a difference. The lie that prayer won't make a difference. Verse 39, Jesus arose and he rebuked the wind. In Mark's gospel, if Jesus is described as rebuking someone or something, he's almost always found rebuking demons and releasing people from their torment. And it's almost as if this storm has a stranglehold on his friends. It's threatening to destroy them. If you've been in a fierce storm, a storm of this magnitude can almost feel like a living thing, intent on devouring everything in its path. And with just a word, Jesus makes the storm instantly turn his friends loose. Verse 39 says... The wind ceased, and there was, notice, a great calm. A calm, literally meaning an unruffled surface on a body of water. From something on the verge of killing them to something suddenly as smooth as a marble floor. Sometimes in scripture, the sea represents chaos and evil. So there's beautiful pictures in the book of Revelation using the sea to illustrate how God will someday soon fully and finally repair everything that we've broken. Look at Revelation 15 too, And I saw what appeared to be, notice, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Former economist and marketplace theology professor Peter Williams has written a marvelous little book entitled Exiles on Mission, How Christians Can Thrive in a Post-Christian World. And he writes that Christians really, in the culture today, are faced with two basic questions. One, has the church lost confidence in the gospel? The good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by means of which God is mending his broken world, reconciling his enemies as sons and daughters? Two, Do we we believe the gospel is actually good news for our society? If we're honest, Williams says, we might feel our society doesn't really need the gospel. Does the gospel have anything to offer? Have we outgrown Jesus now that we have nanotechnology and artificial intelligence and DNA sequencing? In other words, Williams is pointing out here in the West, many of us are just not really sure what Jesus is good for anymore. Like these sailors, we're so competent. We've exerted such seeming mastery over the created order that when suffering hits, we find ourselves in a hospital asking doctors in shock, isn't there anything you can do? And we're stunned when they soberly shake their heads, no. There's a whole lot of modern secular frameworks that you can adopt that'll sail easy on a clear sea. But Only Jesus can command the storm. What you're living for, what you're relying on, is only really going to be tested for what it is in the storm. And I'm not talking about trying to find some kind of spiritual anesthetic, some good luck charm that's going to make you and everyone you love immune to suffering. There's no such thing. What I'm asking is, when you're in the agony of grief, and you feel like you're going to drown, well, the thing that you've decided gives you meaning and fulfillment in life actually come and hold your head above water. When storms hit, we're tempted to believe the lie the prayer won't make a difference because we live in a modern Western culture where we're more in danger from the things we're good at than the things we're bad at because we tend to subtract God out of the places where we're competent and confident. But God won't be subtracted out. He won't let us live the lie of self-reliance for long because he loves us too much. He knows that it's an illusion that's going to badly blow up in our face when we least expect it. One of the biggest reasons why we believe the lie that prayer won't make a difference when storms hit is actually because of the third and the final lie that we see here in our text, the lie that this time's different. This time is different. Verse forty. After he calms the storm, Jesus asks his disciples, why are you afraid? This word can carry with it the idea of cowardice or a lack of self-confidence. And here Jesus actually connects it to trust. Why are you still lacking courage and confidence in me? Verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Do you still have no faith even after All you've seen, Jesus isn't trying to minimize the storm. He's triggering their memories of his sovereignty. In verse 35, he had just said to them, let's go across to the other side, and he meant what he said. He's also trying to remind them of how he's cleansed lepers in chapter one and healed paralytics in chapter two and made a man with a withered hand whole and made demons fall down and beg for mercy in chapter three. He's trying to help them realize that the doubt was actually a greater burden than their storm. The doubt inside them was a greater threat than the storm outside them. What good is it if we manage to avoid suffering if we don't finish well? Jesus isn't going to spare us from suffering if if he knows it's precisely what we're going to need in order to die a Christian. Jesus is trying to help these men understand that they should be more afraid of falling away than of facing storms. Anybody can convince themselves they're a Christian when things are going smooth. You discover if you're really a Christian when you sail into suffering. And if God has, in fact, graciously gifted you the ability to trust him, when you sail into the storm, surprisingly maybe to you, you'll find yourself running to him and pleading with him and pouring out your complaints to him. And of course, in your humanity, you won't do it perfectly. And your doubt and your sin will be all mixed in with your trust. But the fact that you're even bringing that mixed bag to him in the first place is gonna unshakably confirm who you are and whose you are. We don't cling to him because we're so noble. We cling to him because we don't have anywhere else to go that's what faith is. Faith isn't something to be proud of, something noble and dignified. Faith is undignified and desperate. Faith looks like these disciples shaking Jesus awake. Jesus, you got to wake up. You got to rescue me. I've burned through all my best ideas. I've expended all my moral energy. I've been frantically trying to tip the scales in my favor and outweigh all of my secret shame with just enough do-gooding, but it feels like trying to carry water in a wicker basket. You have to intervene. They would have never discovered how easily Jesus can lead the whole universe on a leash unless that storm had first gotten them by the throat. God wasn't so much sending them some kind of coded message through the storm as he was making them into something through the storm. They didn't know it, but they actually needed faith more than comfort when they set sail. They actually needed deep roots more than they needed an easy day. Verse 40, have you still no faith? Faith's a word, as most of you know, that's used in our culture to mean almost anything, which is really another way of saying that it means almost nothing. But in the Bible, faith is simply trust. Who you lean into and rely on? Who or what you're counting on to come through for you in the storm? In the Bible, it's not about how much faith you're cranking out, but whether you're putting it in the right place, the right person. And what Jesus is constantly trying to get his hearers to understand, that if you're putting your trust in the right person, you just need a speck. Faith isn't effective based on its size, but on its source. Verse forty. Have you still no faith? In other words, after all I've done, do you still not trust me to take care of you? Contrary to what authors have been writing for decades and centuries, faith is not actually opposed to reason. We are. (laughs) We're the unreasonable ones. Biblical faith is actually the most reasonable response to the most reliable person who's ever lived. All throughout the Older Testament, God is portrayed as this faithful husband who keeps scratching his head in bewilderment at his chronically cheating spouse because he, he gives her everything and then she pours scorn on his love and his fidelity. Responding with trust and fidelity to the graciousness of Jesus is actually the most reasonable thing that you can do. Our lack of faith, our doubt, Is not reasonable. It's really just a form of spiritual amnesia. Jesus knows his disciples are forgetful people. His question to them, his question to us, is an invitation to remember. Faith's not a leap into the dark, faith is a wrestle to call to mind what God has undeniably done right in front of you, time and time and time again. And sure, part of growing as a Christian involves learning new truths about God. Diligently practicing virtue, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in you both to will and to do, as Philippians tells us. But a large part of dying a Christian is not so much learning new truths, but continually remembering old ones. Often throughout scripture, the opposite of faith is forgetting. So why Judges 8.34 can say, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Our faith fails because we forget. The way we fan our faith back into flame is we fight to remember So finally, his disciples, verse 41, can only stand back and say, who then is this? Who then is this? Suffering is always an opportunity for us to either confirm our suspicions about God's indifference or experience the safety of his presence. Verse 41, and after Jesus calmed the storm, they were filled with great fear. Notice verse 40, Jesus asks them why they're so afraid and failing to trust him. And then verse 41 says, in response to his miracle, they are filled with great fear. Well, this is obviously a different kind of fear. Because this fear is producing awe and quiet wonder instead of the terror of impending death. And the fact that this word fear is used throughout the Bible for both good and sinful things is one of the most confusing things in the whole Bible, let's be honest. But if you take the time to unravel it, you'll find that it's also one of the most profound things in the whole Bible. Theologian Michael Reeves can help us here. Notice what he says. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love toward God that's fitting. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To encounter the living God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He's not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to just be received listlessly. Seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. The same word can be used for both right and sinful fears. Anything from bone-melting dread to ecstatic jubilation. It's used negatively in Isaiah 33. The sinners in Zion are afraid. As a sailor who's I can shake in terror, as a soldier might under heavy fire, or as a sailor who's drowning. But I can also quake in overwhelmed adoration, as when the bridegroom first sees his bride. That's the fear that's taken hold of them now, the terror of death has turned into the quaking of overwhelmed adoration as when the groom first sees his bride. So they can marvel out loud in verse 41. Even the wind and the sea obey him. And now these men have to add another category to their conception of what Jesus has authority over. When Jesus yells a dead man's name, they've learned that he gets up and walks out of the grave. They've learned that when Jesus tells a 64 square mile storm to be quiet, it goes like glass. When he tells blind eyes to see, they drink in color. When he tells lifeless legs to walk, they get up and dance. So the question that this text is driving you to today is, what in your life are you still believing doesn't obey Jesus? What in your world are you sitting here tonight still thinking wouldn't come if Jesus called? This narrative proves for us there's no storm that you're ever gonna sail into that's stronger than the voice of Jesus. There's no suffering you'll ever face because it slipped past Jesus. When these men realize it, all they can say is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Pray with me. Lord, we're stunned by your power. In a technological world that's counterintuitively filled with so much loneliness, depression, anxiety, fear, we stand in awe of your power. But even more than your power, Jesus, I'm struck by your presence. I think I could get my head around power, but I'm astounded that you would pay attention to us. I'm astounded that you're not indifferent. I pray as we come to this communion table tonight and eat this meal with you, that you would send your Holy Spirit to make our hearts believe how attentive you are to us. I pray that every man and woman in this room would feel seen and known by you tonight. In the intimate particularity of their sins and their sorrows, the things they're most ashamed of, the things they're most afraid of, the things they most hope and long for, (laughs) may they experience themselves as seen by you. Father, make it so for Jesus' sake. Amen. I invite you.